This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS section on medical education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, Associate Professor, Medical Intensivist, and PCCM Associate Program Director at New York University. And today we'll be discussing the ATS Scholar Perspective article, a tool to assess competence in critical care ultrasound based on entrustable professional activities. I'm joined by the lead author of the paper, Dr. Haley Israel. Dr. Israel is a graduate of Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, completed her internal medicine residency at Yale New Haven Hospital, stayed on and finished her pulmonary critical care fellowship and a master's in education at Yale University. And now she's an assistant professor of medicine at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Haley, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Fantastic. So, you know, this article's topical area of interest of point of care ultrasound and competency is one that's very near and dear to me personally. And in the interest of full disclosure, I was one of those eight so-called experts used in, in this study. Uh, yes, so you just... were. It's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> so great to, to see you again in, in this forum. So yeah, let's turn our attention to the article. So Haley, there's multiple expert consensus statements advocating for the use of critical care ultrasound for critically ill patients, right? We have ACP, SRLF guidelines, European guidelines, Canadian guidelines, you name it, you know? And so there's so many of them that are out there that already advocate for its use, as well as even kind of the topical areas for competency as well. So what do you see as the limitation in these statements? Where's there an unmet need in this field, particularly related to your study? Mm, uh, thank you for that really good question. I think I see a couple major limitations in these statements. One being that a lot of the statements say that we should have these skills, but they say much less about how to obtain them and how to assure competence. And so we, we have statements telling us you should be able to get views of the heart, be able to interpret hemodynamics using point of care ultrasound, but how we get to that is a lot less clear. I think another major limitation is that because this is a reasonably new skill in our field, it's not a skill that all more senior intensivists have. And so learners are looking to us to learn this skill, but not necessarily everyone can teach them. And once you are established faculty or an established senior intensivist, opportunities for you to learn this skill might be quite limited, both in terms of your access to them and the, and the time to do that. And then finally, there might be a lot of institutional variability in how how point of care ultrasound is used as well. Some institutions are very gung-ho and their intensivists are using TEE routinely. In fact, it's really exciting for me to be at the University of New Mexico where a lot of intensivists use TEE and I'm learning it from them now. But in fellowship, that wasn't the case and intensivists didn't have TEE. And so institutional variability is a huge thing where practice patterns will vary depending on what hospital you're at. And so I think there's a huge amount of unmet needs to clarify more about what training pathways should look like. How do we assure competence for learners? How do we increase access for more senior intensivists to learn this skill? 
And also, you know, we aren't the only kinds of doctors who use ultrasound. Radiologists, cardiologists, cardiac anesthesia, all of these people use ultrasound as well. And conversations should probably loop in these other doctors to make sure that we're all agreeing how we as the new kids on the block should be using ultrasound, given that many other people have been using it for longer that we, than we have. Great. That was, that was a really great, robust answer. Just really speaking to the heterogeneity at really every level, whether it be at if you're an attending, if you're a trainee, if you're a medical student, there's just so much heterogeneity that we see of mm -hmm. our learners coming in and yeah, saying you should be competent in, you know, a given examination, but what does that look like exactly? What does good look like in that approach is something that's definitely agree missing. So, you know, how do we assess, you know, how, how currently, you know, what are the ways to maybe you could provide an overview of mm -hmm. the varying assessment methods available for evaluating critical care competency? Oh, absolutely. For me, we made a table in the article that was really based off the work of a, a prior working group, Dame Wood being the first author on an article in Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training. And this group of emergency physicians did a really good job looking at the different sort of published methods for validating competence in trainees. And so I'll give some credit where credit's due, but I'll outline for you sort of the most common assessment methods used right now for trainees who are learning ultrasound and tell you a little bit about the strengths and limitations. So one is written examination, sort of the oldest thing that all of us are familiar with from day one of school. You sit down and you take a written test. And the benefits of this are that it's standardized. Everybody takes the test. It's also not particularly hard to generate a test, but this really doesn't ultimately test true competence at the bedside. And so it doesn't directly translate to all of the skills of ultrasound acquisition and interpretation. So then I'll move on next to image review. And this is something that's really frequently used in training programs, teaching learners how to use ultrasound. Image review is great in that you can create a portfolio. So when you're a learner expected to bring images to an image review, you're saving them, you're logging them, and you get to discuss the images with a, an expert. But some of the limitations are that you're just not getting feedback in real time and you're not getting feedback on how you are scanning. It's just the ultimate image that you bring. So limitations in that it's not happening live. Another one that many educators are probably familiar with are OSCEs, or Observed Structured Clinical Observations. OSCEs are standardized by their nature, and you in an OSCE are also getting real-time evaluation of image acquisition and interpretation, and so they actually have a lot of strengths. But I think some of the limitations of OSCEs are that they're time-intensive for faculty, both to perform them and to score them. Faculty need to be trained, and then often you need to hire standardized patients, and then ultimately an OSCE isn't an authentic clinical scenario. It is a, it, you know, an actor, not someone with actual abdominal pain, and so some limitations, even though OSCEs are great. And then finally, the last one to talk about is SDOTs, or Standardized Direct Observation Tools, which is just a fancy name for checklists. And we have a number of published checklists for learning ultrasound. These are pretty good as well because they're standardized, and these can be integrated into either an OSCE or into clinical work to allow for real-time evaluation of a learner who's scanning live. But like in OSCE, they can be pretty time intensive, both to conduct and to score. The faculty often need to be trained. And so it's 
less easy to sort of implement a, a checklist on the fly. So these are the things that are really most often in use at the moment. And then as we go on in the talk, we're going to talk about EPAs, which have begun to be described in the literature and is the thing that our paper is really about. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic overview. And as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about my own program. And yeah, I mean, we use multiple choice testing because of that standardization part of it. And we can, you know, use it from year to year as well. Archival and image review because portfolios are definitely a hot topic. And then it, it can help showcase to because a lot of professional societies want that or recommend for portfolio creation, even our credentialing pathway at NYU has portfolio creation as part of that as well. And then we use some OSCE with some validity evidence behind them that was created by one of my you know prior mentors Paru Patrawala and you know some of those checklists now that were in the OSCEs we actually utilize that in the real world setting with real mm. patients so that way we can kind of bridge those gap of using those OSCE checklists but then using it kind of in the real world to, to get at that and so you know your article is really focused more on EPAs and so uh, you know I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and really kind of the advantages that you saw that they offer over some of these other assessment methods for critical care ultrasound. Yeah absolutely I'll start off by telling you what an EPA is, because even though this is an educational <laughs> podcast, I think it, it's worth defining. EPA stands for Entrustable Professional Activity, and what it is at its most basic is a clinical task. And the approach to this clinical task is that it can be entrusted to a trainee to a certain degree once they've demonstrated the competence to perform that task with certain amounts of supervision. And the assessment of an EPA is framed as the amount of permission or the, the amount of trust that you give that trainee in performing the task. So you'll, you'll evaluate an EPA with what's called an entrustability scale, which is just an ordinal rating scale. And very simply, you know, the Ottawa entrustability scale, which is the one that I've modified to use in this tool, just asks the assessor, did you have to do the entire task for the trainee? Could the trainee do it with just verbal guidance? Did you have to physically step in and assist the trainee? Or was the trainee entirely independent and you didn't have to be there? So very intuitive, just how much did you have to help this trainee get through the task? So that's what an EPA is and how we assess EPAs with an entrustability scale. And so why do I think that EPAs are a particularly good thing to consider using in evaluating learners of ultrasound? And I think it's really for two reasons. One is that an EPA can be used to assess competence as a whole, and it can be used to do it in an authentic clinical workspace. And so I, I want to take one minute to talk about a framework that's been proposed in a lot of ultrasound literature that contextualizes POCUS competence with an acronym IAIM. And that acronym stands for Indication, Acquisition, Interpretation, and Medical Decision Making. And that is really the sort of four sub-competencies that many of us agree are what a trainee needs to be able to demonstrate to be fully competent. They need to know when they're using ultrasound, why are they doing it, is this a good indication, and can ultrasound actually help you answer this clinical question. Then they need to get the images, they need to interpret them with the 
you know, quality of image that they've obtained, and then they need to integrate that into the management of their patient. And only someone who can do all of those things is truly competent in the use of ultrasound. And I think an EPA can actually help you assess all of that because what's happening is you're watching a trainee do an authentic clinical task and that authentic clinical task is, is caring for their patient. And so I think EPAs are great for that reason. And then they're also great because they're so sort of intuitive. EPAs just operationalize what we've already done in medicine for decades. A trainee does a task, you observe them, and you use all of these sort of your own supervisor style, you know, the clinical context and the stakes of that clinical encounter, the complexity of the clinical task, you take those all into account and you either trust the trainee to do the whole thing or you step in and help. And so just taking that sort of very like intuitive way that we've always taught trainees and just turning it into an EPA, I think is very intuitive for people to learn how to do. And so hopefully easy to use at the bedside when a tool is based on an EPA. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm hearing a lot of amazing things about, and again, this is where a, a lot of the field in, in point of care ultrasound has been moving towards this kind of concepts of EPAs. But a lot of things I'm hearing is the, the one, the authenticity, because so it's happening in the workplace environment, that it bakes into it the complexity of the task as well, where oftentimes we were checking off, was this an easy or difficult type of, of procedure, very intuitive to know about, mm -hmm. well, what did you do? What was your part to help that learner you know, perform that. And then also the concept of it being a whole task. And from an instructional design model, this is a whole task rather than some component part of a piece of that as well. I'm thinking about, because that was one of the issues when we use like a mastery model and we go kind of from the novice to the advanced beginner to competent, proficient, and master, they really have mm. to then be very anchored. You really need those kind of anchors to know what is, well, what's the difference between somebody who's an advanced beginner versus competent or competent and proficient. And so you need some strong anchors on those for the assessor. Whereas mm -hmm. I think this is a little bit easier in that regard, because you can ask yourself, well, what did I have to do? Did I have to verbally help them to get through it? Did I have to take over the procedure as mm -hmm. well? So I think it's a little bit more, as you said, intuitive as well in nature. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just this individual task. That's yeah. the only thing I'm assessing at this moment in time. If you're being asked to assess a trainee with competencies and you're being asked, how is this this trainee's you know, medical knowledge? Whew, that's a hard question to answer, yeah. even when you've worked with someone for a week. But how did they do on this particular task? It's much easier to answer and then can be summed over time to create a bigger picture. Great. So now we move kind of from, you know, this area of kind of EPAs, competency, let's get more specific. And so, you know, what were you trying to do with your, your study? What were the specific purposes, your primary objectives? Mm -hmm. So I really had two. The first objective was the study of the study is to develop an EPA-based tool that assesses competence in critical care ultrasound. And the second objective was to gather validity evidence for the tool's use with pulmonary and critical care fellows. Fantastic. Very, very clear, very succinct. And so, you know, I saw that you use this kind of nominal group technique. And, mm -hmm. you know, can you talk a little bit about that? And I think some, some of our listeners might be more, you know, understanding of, say, a, a Delphi method or something mm -hmm. instead. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if you could talk about that and the differences. Oh, absolutely. 
So both the nominal group technique and the modified Delphi method are systematic approaches for reaching consensus among a group of experts. And it, it does seem like modified Delphi is used more often in medical education literature, but I'll outline what the nominal group technique is. So it is a meeting-based technique where experts participate in the following steps. Step one is individual idea generation. So all of the experts who are present at the meeting generate an exhaustive list of their own ideas. Step two is that there's a round robin recording of the ideas. And so each individual expert contributes one idea, and then the next person contributes the next idea. And in a circular round robin fashion, you collect all of the ideas. Step three is serial discussion of the ideas. So meaning you alternate through these ideas and allow for clarification, for merging of ideas that were similar, for eliminating of ideas of oh, that was a great idea in the moment, but it doesn't really sort of fit as well as you were thinking. And then step four. Four is preliminary voting, where all of the people present vote on the ideas that have been generated. And then there's a discussion of preliminary voting as step five. And then step six is final voting. And so I think one of the big strengths of the nominal group technique is that it happens all at once. It is a single meeting and you leave the single meeting with the answer. And for me, when I was working with eight experts from across North America, the US and Canada, we had people all across the country. I wanted to make sure that the one time that we met, we would leave with an answer because coordinating experts is occasionally logistically difficult. And so it worked really well for that. But the nominal group technique differs a little bit from the modified Delphi technique and that the modified Delphi technique does not happen all at once. It's an iterative discussion from experts who are actually unanimous or sorry, not unanimous, anonymous. That's a very similar <laughs> word and yeah. respond anonymously to the study coordinator iteratively over time in different rounds. And so I think a Delphi technique is also a very strong method for reaching consensus, but one that takes a lot more time and coordination that I didn't think I would necessarily have. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, from personally, like being there and, and having those conversations, I thought that was very rich because it gave a chance to have a conversation of what was really important, what things could be brought together in a very immediate way, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I thought that that was a very nice method. Whereas, you know, the Delphi, it, it it stirs a little bit, like you send it out and then, you know, people have to think and ruminate about it and then come back. And, and so this was a very focused kind of, you know, meeting time to kind of hash things out. So I, I definitely appreciated that, that, that approach to it. We stayed kind of immersed in the topic. Yeah. And we were able to achieve a lot in just two hours. We did end up doing our final voting retrospectively, which I also think is fine. It gave some people some time to marinate before doing their mm -hmm. ultimate final voting. But it, yeah, it was very satisfying and very rich for just a two hour meeting time. And so, you know, from this process, you know, can you summarize the EPAs that were developed by this expert group using this, this nominal process, nominal mm -hmm. process? Yeah, yeah. So we came out of this meeting after final voting with 11 EPAs, and they fell really into two categories quite naturally. They were either diagnostic or procedural. And the diagnostic EPAs were the ones in which a trainee was being asked to evaluate a patient with a clinical syndrome. And the procedural ones were where the trainee was being asked to use ultrasound to facilitate performance of a procedure. And so our diagnostic EPAs ended up being evaluate a patient with shortness of breath or respiratory failure, 
evaluate a patient with hypotension or shock, evaluate a patient with cardiac arrest, evaluate a patient with acute kidney injury or renal failure, evaluate a pleural effusion, evaluate a patient with clinical concern for intra-abdominal free fluid, and evaluate a patient with clinical concern for deep vein thrombosis. And then our four procedural EPAs were perform central line placement, perform arterial line placement, perform thoracentesis, and perform paracentesis. Yeah, very, very kind of straightforward list, you know, I mean, I feel like these are exactly the tasks that we utilize ultrasound for, for our critically ill patients on, on a daily basis, you know, the performance aspects, the diagnosis aspects as well. And, and then were you looking at which, you know, in terms of the learner, did it matter that was our focus on pulmonary critical care fellows? Were they on residents, trainees? What level were we focusing on for these, these tests? These the learner group that we had in mind was fellows. Because I was in a pulmonary and critical care program myself, I went on to study the tool with pulmonary and critical care fellows. But I do think that trainees, residents as well, could probably use these EPAs as well, even though that wasn't the learner group we were specifically thinking about. I think it's the level of complexity that is well suited to both residents and fellows, probably. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember during some of our conversations, there was a lot of talk about kind of this concept of lumping versus splitting with some of these. Sometimes we're very in the weeds and, and talking about very specific aspects that might be within, right, your patient with respiratory failure, for example, and making, you know, sub-diagnoses. And then there mm. were times where we were kind of a little broad. And so how do we think about kind of the specificity of EPAs, lumping versus splitting? That's such a good question. And it's so hard because the your threshold for what should constitute an EPA depends a lot on the sophistication of your learner. And so if you think about maybe defining EPAs for medical students, these could be quite sort of limited granular tasks. Like an EPA for a medical student might be formulate a differential diagnosis. And that's a, a full clinical task for a learner who is at the sort of low end of their, their complexity. But then for your senior internal medicine resident about to graduate in a few months, their EPA might be manage an inpatient medical service. And the sophistication of that EPA is so much higher, but that's because the sophistication of the learner is so much higher. And so in ultrasound, we've really got the same sort of question of, should we be super granular where our EPA is obtain a, obtain a parasternal long axis view for cardiac ultrasound? Or could honestly, could it all just be the one EPA of use ultrasound to manage your patient and any sort of granularity in between? And I think ultimately our expert group thought that anchoring on clinical situations and anchoring on procedures felt like the right amount of detail and the right amount of sophistication for learners at this level. But I think potentially a different group of experts might have felt differently. It, it's a hard question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely obviously, you know, come, come down more on the side of that, those whole, you know, tasks, authentic tasks that we would have, whereas, you know, getting a task that's, you know, getting a pedestrian on a long axis view, it seems like a sub part, you know, it doesn't answer mm -hmm. that clinical question. And I can imagine to a learner, they're like, okay, I got a view. Now what do I do with that view? And so, mm -hmm. you know, we're losing some of that practicality, that pragmatism of what to do with that, that view. And I think that's where kind of we stayed to that level, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so now that you have this list of EPAs, how do you turn that into a practical bedside tool? Mm, yeah. So fortunately, EPAs are really simple to turn into a bedside tool. But exactly what we did is, the, you know, the, the 11 EPAs are the basis of the tool. And the assessment of the EPAs is a modified Ottawa entrustability scale. So as I mentioned before, what that modified scale looks like is that an entrustment ranking of one from the attending's perspective is the attending says, I did it. I did the clinical task. The learner didn't do any of the task. A rating of two is I talked them through it. A rating of three is I needed to prompt. A rating of four is I needed to be there just in case. And a rating of five is I did not need to be there. And so all that the tool really is, is which EPA did you do and how entrustable were you? And to make that even more practical at the bedside, what we did is we made a QR code, we laminated it, we stuck it on all the ultrasounds in the ICU, and the learners would hold up their smartphones, they would scan the QR code, and then the tool would be opened on a Qualtrics survey on their phone where they could fill it in at the bedside with their attending. There were other things that we had the learners and the attendings collect during the study, but everything else that we had them collect, like their PGY year, how much ultrasound had they studied in the past, those were all for our validation and our assessment of the tool. They weren't actually the, the evaluation itself. Great, fantastic. That's very helpful to understand that, that process and some of the technical ways that you, that you did that. Kind of similarly, then now you went off in, in second part was of your study was really to validate this, this tool. And so just in general, how does one go about validating a tool? Because lots of people create you know, checklists and tools, and I, I think that they may not be as knowledgeable about, then how do you make it, you know, how do you start to get validity evidence supporting it? I love this question. <laughs> so validity, at least in the context of, of medical education and validating tools, sort of refers to a carefully structured argument where you assemble evidence from a variety of sources to support the interpretation of your instrument score. And even more simply, making an argument that your tool tells what it says it tells. <laughs> and, and the the framework that I used here is a validity framework created initially by Messick, so often referred to as Messick's framework, although there are others. And Messick's framework has five facets of validity that you're expected to address. And I addressed many of them. I didn't, I think I addressed four out of five in this study. The, so first is a concept called content validity. And content validity really asks the question, do the instrument's items, in this case, the EPAs, completely and correctly represent your construct? And here the construct is competence in use of ultrasound. And I made an argument in the paper, along with my co-authors, that we had content validity based on really two different things. One thing is the use of expert opinion. And so the experts here were my ultrasound experts who gathered from across North America and referral to expert documents that have been published, like our professional societies like CHEST and SCCM that have given us guidance. And then similarly, I used the IAIM framework for the sub-competencies of POCUS, also as a, a framework to lend validity here to content validity. So really making the argument that we have content validity because we're referring to a lot of expert opinion in the field. 
So that's facet one of Messick's framework. Facet number two is called response process validity. And response process validity asks the question, is there a strong relationship between your intended construct and the thought processes of the people filling out your tool? So basically, are your evaluators using the tool in the way that you would intend? And are they using it similarly to each other? And so the way that we assured thought or response process validity is, first of all, we provided training for the faculty and the trainees. So I made training videos that everyone viewed before using the tool. And then we studied it a couple different times in our analysis and saw that there was a minimal amount of variance between evaluators, which is wonderful, meaning evaluators were using the tool in a similar way. And then we also studied concordance between trainee self-assessment on the tool and the evaluation of their attendings and saw good concordance there as well to lend evidence that everyone using this tool was sort of thinking about it in the same way. So that's our response process validity. Facet three of Messick's validity framework is internal structure validity and reliability. And we'll breeze past internal structure validity because it's not relevant in this particular study, but reliability is. And we'll talk a lot more about reliability in a few minutes when we talk about generalizability theory. But basically, a lot of you are familiar with reliability. As tests are done over time, can we show that you know, things like test retest reliability or inter-rater reliability are present and that we're not seeing a lot of variation in scores over time. Facet number four in Messick's framework is validity from relation to other variables. And this is one that I like a lot because what you do here is you demonstrate correlation of your instrument's score with factors where you would expect a correlation to be present and absence of correlation where you would not expect it to be present. And so in our study, we proposed a few things where we thought correlation could probably be demonstrated. And the things that we chose were PGY year, number of times the learner has done the EPA, whether or not the learner had had formal ultrasound training courses, the complexity of the case, and the learner's self-assessment of their performance. And we used regression analysis in the study to demonstrate that there were in fact correlations between these variables and the learner's scores. And so that lent validity from relation to other variables to our, to our study. And I'll breeze past number five because we didn't really use it in this study, but consequence validity is the last facet of, of Messick's framework. And it's really just to show that if your tool results in consequences for these learners. So theoretically, we could have demonstrated something like, did fellows who scored very highly on this tool, did they go on to use ultrasound more frequently in their attending practice? Or were they more likely to become clinical intensivists rather than researchers? And so those are sort of theoretical things we could have done, but in this study, we didn't study consequence validity. Fantastic. That was a fantastic overview of kind of, you know, Messick and, and, and the different sources of, you know, validity evidence, you know, behind, behind your tool. And, you know, one of the concepts you mentioned in your article was that of generalizability theory analysis. And can you talk a little bit about that and how you applied it to your study? Mm -hmm. So generalizability theory is a statistical analysis framework to analyze reliability. 
And we used it in this study because sort of the more classical analyses that you may be more familiar with for reliability are really hard when you are assessing authentic clinical tasks. So if you think about test-retest reliability or inter-rater reliability, these things assume that multiple assessors are evaluating the same task, which when you are scanning with your fellow in the ICU is not happening. You are the only assessor present. And test-retest reliability assumes that the same assessment is going to happen again in the future. And similarly here, that's not the case either. So generalizability theory is a statistical analysis that allows us to take these authentic clinical evaluations and try to do some reliability analysis. And what it allows you to do is estimate the variance of things that you define as facets in the analysis. So you choose which variables should be pulled apart and analyzed for how much they contribute to your score. And what we chose in a very simple model of generalizability theory analysis is we chose the trainee, the EPA, and the evaluator. And those were our three facets. And the analysis allowed us to pull apart how much variance in score could be attributed to each, the trainee, the EPA, and the evaluator. Fantastic. And then, you know, getting to that next level, then it looks like your article mentions that trainees counted for about 45% of the variance. And Mm -hmm. so what are the implications of this finding? And can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll put that into context with comparing how much variance we saw related to the EPA and the evaluator as well. So as you said, 45% of total variability was attributable to the trainee. The variability we could attribute to the evaluator was 6% and to the EPA was 1%. Mm -hmm. And these are results that made me really happy. And that's because you want to see variability in your learner. And that's because your learner's variance is what, in this case, we would call the true variance. Your learners are different. They were evaluated differently. They have different levels of skill. And so we're seeing far and away more variability in our scores related to the trainee and that's that's great because the trainees are themselves truly different. But then we compare this to the EPA and the evaluator where we see very little variability. And that's also great because that means that our evaluators are using a shared mental model of the different levels of entrustability. Everyone sort of agreed on what it looked like to have a learner that just needed to be prompted occasionally. And that's wonderful. And so I think this is also part of our argument for validity, that this tool does differentiate between learners and doesn't have a whole lot of variability from other things. That's fantastic. That puts it into a better context in terms of of understanding, right? There's reliability with the assessors who are using this tool and the variation is coming from where you want the variation to come from (laughs) is, you know, who's being assessed, you know, right? Mm -hmm. So we can discern their differences, right? So that's, I think, right on what you want to see in this. Now, interestingly, you found that there was kind of 47% kind of unexplained variance in the Mm -hmm. study. Do you have any insights into what was causing that? It's absolutely everything we didn't consider. So (laughs) anything at all other than the trainee, the evaluator, and the EPA. And in the setting of an authentic clinical task, man, that's a lot of things. (laughs) So that could be the clinical location of the assessment, the time that the trainee and their attending had to perform the assessment, the complexity of the case, the quality of the ultrasound, whether or not they were interrupted mid-assessment by a code, so many things. 
case. And so when you look at the literature that does similar analyses of, of EPAs, you'll see that this amount of unexplained variance, that's you know almost half the variance in the model, is pretty par for the course. When it comes to authentic clinical tasks, it's just impossible to standardize them. And so there ends up being a lot of variance just due to the task, due to the fact that these are authentic clinical scenarios and each one's going to be different in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that, that's, I, I think that, you know, uh, yeah, kind of the par for the course, you know, part of things, it makes it uh, more understandable that, that and, and we all understand there's so much variation in our clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from an educational standpoint, rather than trying to standardize all of the variation, I think it's more about embracing that there is differences <laughs> in that clinical working environment, because that's real life. And so I think it stays more true to what what is real, you know, in our real practices. Absolutely. So last question for you is really about kind of the next steps, you know, one for next steps for this tool specifically, and then mm -hmm. also just kind of the future of EPAs in critical care ultrasound education in general. Yeah, at least for the future of this tool, I think this tool needs more validation. And, and that's because we were able in our analysis to get a lot of assessments collected for three of the diagnostic EPAs, the patient with the shortness of breath, a patient with hypotension and a patient with a pleural effusion. But beyond those, we really struggled to collect robust data on the procedural EPAs and for the other diagnostic EPAs. So I think in the future to build more validity evidence for this tool, I need more assessments of, of different, different clinical tasks. But then more broadly, I really think EPAs are a really exciting future in medical education, and I hope that we can implement them beyond just ultrasound and really all across our intensivist practice. They're just, it's so much easier to evaluate, as we discussed before, an independent clinical task rather than a trainee's system-based practice or a patient's or trainee's medical knowledge. It You as the evaluator can evaluate that one single instance in time, and that learner can collect EPAs as a portfolio over time that will show their progress, that will help them hone in on the clinical tasks where they are strong and the clinical tasks where they are struggling. And that's so much more actionable than feedback of, you need to improve your your medical knowledge. You know, you you needed supervision in paracentesis. So now it's time for you to get more paracenteses. And then EPAs are also great because they create live opportunities for formative feedback at the bedside. If a learner and an attending know that they are going to the bedside for the evaluation of an EPA, that's a time for feedback and a time for learning. And filling out that form together creates a, an opportunity for feedback that might not otherwise be there. So I really hope that EPAs will be more broadly used really in all aspects of medical education. And I think they probably will be. Yeah, that's that's fantastic because we, you know, EPAs, we, we think of potentially as kind of more summative types of uh, evaluations that I'm a big, big proponent of, you know, anytime we can use these types of things for more formative feedback, giving back, letting them know where deficits are, gaps in practice, and then allowing them to improve upon that and in a very direct you know, actionable, you know, ways is very, very, I think, important for, especially, you know, our learners are, are ones who are so self-motivated that if you mm -hmm. can actually show them their deficiencies and their gaps, they will oftentimes embrace it and, and run with it, you know? And so I think these things have a lot, EPAs in general have a lot of legs to them for both critical care, ultrasound and beyond as well. Absolutely. 
All right. Well, fantastic. I think that's a pretty good place to end the podcast on that note. Haley, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your amazing insights into really just pragmatic approaches to EPAs and critical care ultrasound and beyond. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was a really fun discussion. Well, that does it for us and this latest scholarly podcast. And for those podcast listeners, Dr. Israel's article on a tool to assess competence in critical care ultrasound based on entrustable professional activities is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Bye for now.